0: The Sports Career podcast episode 248 How to create a competitive edge with a brand and athlete partnership Hello, Sports Achiever, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports Career Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular sector in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in pursuing a career in brand sponsorship and athlete partnerships within the sports industry. I hope today's episode can be useful to you with regards to your sports career development, interests, and needs. Now, getting back to today's episode, this week's special guest is Andrew Stalling. Andrew has a fascinating sports career journey. He is the founder of Othello Group, which specialises in brands and athlete partnerships within the sports industry. But what's really interesting about Andrew is he partners with athletes not in the mainstream. So he works with athletes with regards to different sports and different sectors, but still creating that competitive edge in how brands and athletes can partner to create win-win situations. For that reason, it's such a pleasure to have Andrew as a special guest on the show. And that's when today's episode, Andrew will share his sports career journey and explain the benefits on how to create a competitive edge with a brand and athlete partnership. Andrew, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast show. Please, do share to listeners your sports career journey. When did it all start? Yeah, no, I appreciate the
1: time, Edward. I love the work that you're doing, and and first and foremost, thank you again for for scheduling uh, a little bit of time for a little old me in the schedule. Um, so, yeah, my journey is a little bit different. Um, you know, I, I think it's all too common that we hear in the sports business world, you know that everybody growing up kind of started off by just loving sports. Right. And we always knew that we wanted to be in sports and we all knew that, you know, we wanted to work for a team, like, because again, being so young, that was, that was the only journey. So, you know, for me, I, I was just like, okay, that's the journey. That's the goal. There's only one way to get there. So again, I know that I'll get to that door when that door kind of becomes more realistic and more approachable, you know, probably, you know, in my mind, junior, senior year of university. And, you know, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll worry about it then. But I know all I need to do right now is make it from where I'm at at age eight to, you know, senior or, you know, junior year of, of university. So I, I didn't really think too much about the how, but I, I quickly became, you know, very interested in understanding the world of, of kind of sports business, sports marketing, the entertainment side, um, you know, pretty much in my high school years um, and grade school years, because, you know, I started, you know, developing a lot of relationships with professional minor league hockey players. Uh, you know, if, if you've heard any about my journey in the past, you know, it, it pretty much all started with a minor league hockey team. Um, my father and I and my mom, we moved from one side of the state in Virginia to the other. When I was in third grade, I had no friends. Um, I was well behind the education curve and a lot of stuff. The only thing I had to really cope um, socially was that my dad went and bought um, season tickets to the minor league hockey team in Roanoke, Virginia for the Roanoke Express of the East Coast Hockey League. And that league, if you don't know anything about kind of the, the minor league structure of, of American hockey, it's like the double A of hockey. And meaning those guys oftentimes are not getting up to the NHL. They're, they're not making it to the big leagues. So you're almost there for the entertainment perspective of it. Like these guys are beating the living crap out of each other every night. It's, it's rough. It's rowdy, high goal scoring, lots of entertainment. Um, but a very unique crowd. And that was just something that my father and I, we always bonded over. And I became close with the players, the personnel of the organization. And I was only there for a year and a half, but that was kind of my first foray into understanding that world of sports and like who, who does what in a lot of these different areas of verticals like, Oh, there's a PR person because they're booking players for interviews. Oh, there's the equipment guy who's taking care of. There's the coach. Like I started just really becoming hyper aware probably by age 11 of who does what. And I started growing with that mentality into high school and I always thought about it, you know, just at that reality of, you know, junior or senior year in university was probably going to become a little bit sooner and you know i struggled in in high school and grade school just because i didn't i i just had such a passion for people and community and communication but i I sucked in sitting in a math class. Like I, I could not go through a history class. I just, you know, I was an average student, you know, 2.4, 2.5, something GPA for the most part. And, you know, not bad, but I mean, if you're looking to get into a lot of the great universities that my friends were going to, you had to be, you know, on top of your game. So when it came down to, to getting into university, I remember I had gotten rejected from about 12 different schools. And that kind of led me to my first pitch where, you know, the last school that rejected me, was Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia. And I remember coming home, got rejected. My parents were like, ah, you know, it's okay. It's okay. You know, like, you go to, you know, community or local community school and, you know, we'll do that for a year. And I was like, no, no, like, here, let me just write a letter to the dean of admissions and, you know, I'll, it'll be fine. We'll figure it out. And that was kind of my first pitch into this world of life. And I got conditionally accepted, you know, to that school and ended up graduating in four years, spending at least one semester on the Dean's list. Um, You know, it was, it was good, but you know, all of that kind of prepared me to getting to university. And that's when everything started building up, you know, the internship opportunities with Sirius XM radio, I was doing freelance writing for a lot of different blogs, um, you know, in Canada, and the U.S. about hockey, which, was horrible because I'm such a big hockey fan and they say, never work at your favorite restaurant. You should never be writing or working in a sport that you love so much because it's terrible. Like I could never watch a hockey game the same way. Like I'm usually like, Oh yeah. Goal scoring high energy. I I was looking at plus minuses, analytical breakdown time on and off the ice. Like it was horrible so you know d- did that and you know had a great college career uh went to radio did that as an internship made it full-time uh went agency side uh, afterwards over at octagon uh which is a big global sports agency uh and then a few other agency stops uh went brand side a little bit and then you know lo and behold this this little baby called othello group just kind of popped out of nowhere um really uh, after about six or seven beers, after playing a men's league hockey game, the the idea was born. And um, it wasn't until like, I was forced in a layoff uh, opportunity for my current employer that it was like, okay, this isn't a hobby. This is sink or swim. Like you have to try and make this work or you can go apply for 15 more jobs and, and try to become part of the workforce. And I can't tell you how thankful I am that I actually gave myself that opportunity to to take this risk. And And I mean, look, we're almost three years into it next month. And it's just been magic. Like every single day is, you know, highs and lows, but it's just been pure magic.
0: Andrew, what a reply. My goodness, I've got to go back in time, though. There's so much I want to say, but I think the first thing I want to say is how proud are you that you went with the different approach with regards to your journey? Because a lot of people think, and I was there, I wasn't great at school, but we have a passion for sport, get the degree, get the job. It's like a tick box but i've learned a lot from the people i've interviewed a lot of it comes down to having a that figure out mindset so relating to your career how what are the benefits of being different
1: yeah so as far as just being different i mean we always see like whether it's a professional athlete whether it's a leader in today's society all of them portray these different characteristics right you know whether they are excellent communicators they demonstrate very unique and articulate leadership skills being different while 10 years ago may have been met with a raised eyebrow. Today's society, difference in creativity and in innovation are, are expected in almost every single job that you do in this world. You can't be as good as somebody. You always have to be better and not just at the original skill, but you have to be different. So for me, you know, this thought process is nothing foreign, you know. And I think starting early on, I all, I always was a little bit different, you know. Like I, you know, I had ADD and ADHD. Like I couldn't focus on a lot of things. Still to this day, I struggle with it. And I think that's kind of a testament to my business model because, you know, a lot of agents and a lot of managers they focus on one or two sports. For right now, I have so much fun knowing that we're jumping in about seven to 10 different sports verticals right now, because no two conversations are ever the same. I'll hang up with you here and I'll probably be on a conversation with a protein company about fitness. And then after that, be learning about cricket from somebody over in Mumbai. Like it's, it's fantastic how different it is. So, you know, just in terms of talking about like different skills and, and how proud I am, I mean, look, i I'm no saint. I'm no expert. I I certainly, I I could be the richest man in the world, to be honest with you, Ed. And and I wouldn't ever, I, I just, I was raised to not ever absorb such an ego or such a, accountability to my accomplishments. I'm more focused on my failures because the failures are what, what, what have made me good. And they're continuing to make me better and they're making my team better. You know, when I talk to, you know, people that work underneath me or people that work with me client side, or even athlete side, I tell them, I'm like, look, we seriously do not need to be focusing on, you know, the, the numbers behind a project or like, you know, the, the KPIs, like the key performance indicators of success in a campaign, what we need to do is to be hyper aware of those. But what we need to be willing to do is also understand how do we not only accomplish those, but how do we almost two or three X on our accomplishments by way of failure. And for me, that's everything that I've done in life. You know, again, like I told you earlier, I got rejected from 12 universities, here I am, you know, still somehow have a roof under my head have a beautiful wife, dogs and money in the bank, you know, we're doing okay. You know, and then same to be said, like I've, I've dealt with adversity, you know, when it comes to just being fired and laid off and told that I just, I've been horrible at my job. Like I've had bosses make me come in and sit down and do like a presentation deck literally for 18 hours straight over a weekend in office, because, you know, they were just like, look, you you know, you need to learn this the hard way. Like you need to learn by reps. And I I think it it all goes to though, getting the reps in, learning things a little bit differently and being a little bit more hands-on is, is kind of what has helped me develop to be the leader that I am today. I, you can't sit here and tell me, and you can't listen to a podcast. You can't read a book. And absorb all of that tangible information that's going to make you better at what you do or make you a better person. You have to put it into action. And I think that is, you know, probably the big difference, probably the big differentiating factor. And when we look at knowledge today and how easy it is. Yes, we have YouTube, we have all this great stuff. We have all these podcasts, but how are you putting it into action? And I, I've talked to so many friends of mine, like, I read 15 books last month. <laughs> I'm like, cool. How are you putting that into action? I, I'm going ahead and I'm, I'm starting this new TikTok creator house and it's going to have all these big creators from all over the world. Great. What is your strategy? What is your action? Like, how are you putting this into place for success? And it all goes down to how we def- define success. For me, you know, I try to take more of a humble approach. Um, like I said, I'm very proud of where I am. I'm very proud of the life that I have, you know, more than anything. I still feel like everyone else in this world, imposter syndrome and every single thing that I do, I, I suffer from it every single day. I have some of the biggest agents in the world from other agencies that I've worked with that, you know, kind of scoff and raise an eyebrow and who I used to be able to talk to now, you know, won't even give me the time of day because it's almost looked at as if I'm making a mockery of of this agency world and this management world. But, but really what I'm just trying to do is, is do going back to what you said all along is just do things differently. And I think if you can think about things differently, understanding that difference isn't always the right answer and that there always isn't alternatives to every solution just be open-minded and just be looking around and and kind of be inquisitive, but be respectfully inquisitive to the fact that there are people who have put a lot of effort into finding answers in today's world. And sometimes those answers are just good enough to execute against.
0: Andrew, you see my big smile. And it relates to one point I say to students, you have theory knowledge and practical knowledge. It's practical knowledge that's more important, far more important. That goes down to your point with the reps. But there's one thing I've learned interviewing so many different guests and every journey is different, but there's always sort of like, traits or patterns of similarity and you've mentioned it right at the beginning that made you stand out and i can tell with your experience on the radio your communication so could we just dab into looking back how your communication skills have developed over time and how has it benefited you right now
1: yeah so communication is has been everything to me uh you know i i think if we take a, a big step back you know it started with my parents and even my grandfather um my grandfather Uh, He rode an elephant down the middle of the road in Wilson, North Carolina, when he was opening up movie theaters and doing uh, movie premieres with famous actresses like Ava Gardner and Elvis Presley back in the day. You know, he was such a theatric showman that he was the circus before the circus. And I think that adopted into my father who spent about 40 plus years in banking um, at a more localized level in Southeast Virginia. And, you know, my dad was the kind of person where he was more well known than the mayor of the town. He could walk into any restaurant, gas station, uh, you know, freaking homeless shelter and people knew who he was. And they were just like, and it wasn't like, oh, hello, Mr. Stallings, it was, hey, Roy, hey, hey, Wani, like, you know, his nickname, and, you know, it was, it was just so funny, because I I was raised around that mentality early on to not, the, the way to have people respect you, and not necessarily like you is by showing them the exact same, you know, just the, the exact same skill set, like give them the same time, regardless of what their job is, what their social class is, give them that same respect. And again, am I dumping knowledge that, you know, is groundbreaking or different? No, but it is important to to remind, remind ourselves of all that. So for me growing up, you know, I I was given kind of the social butterfly bug and and I was able to communicate with adults, you know, very, at a very young age, it came to bite me in the ass a little bit, you know, in my teenage years, because I, I almost got to mature and I almost knew as much as adults, some adults, at least in terms of communication style. So people would be like, Oh, Hey, little 13 year old, you know, Andrew, like this and that. And I was just like, why are you talking to me that way? Like, let's have a legitimate conversation. Let's do this. And, and some people were really thrown off about that. So there was certainly a maturity gap in my teenage years, just, you know, and again, I, I met it with anger and, you know, kind of resistance. And I was just like, man, why, why can't anyone understand or respect you know, the fact that I can talk like a 40 year old person and, you know, hold my own in a conversation, you know, generally. And so it was a little bit of that, you know, adolescence growing phase that that became difficult, but the same held true as I got older. And that, you know, respect organically came in was just that, you know, look, The only way that you can get that respect is to also be a little bit more educated on your topics. You know, like you can go in and you can be a salesperson and be like, Hey, how are you? You know, you know, kind of shoot your shit and this and that. But when you bring value to the table in your conversations, it's, it's again, the most game changing thing in the entire world. Something I tell my team all the time, you know, whether it's for PR and communications or with business development, when we reach out to somebody, if we're not doing our homework and taking a second to say, okay, I'm not just reaching out to the head of sponsorship at AT&T because I saw that they just locked in a $5 million you know, new sponsorship deal and I want a piece of that pie. What we're doing is we're saying, okay, I'm looking at the company. I'm looking at what the company's reports have done in the past few years. I'm looking at you know, what their marketing campaigns have done. Now I'm looking at the person. What has the person done? You know, what has been their responsibilities, their goals? Can I look at their Instagram? Can I look at their Facebook? Taking that time to get that personalized connection before you even engage in a conversation is so important. And, and it's something that I've, I've been doing you know, probably since my university years and just knowing that people want to talk to people that have good hearts, but they love talking to people that have good hearts and values. And if you're able to bring that value to the table, again, it's insurmountable. It's, it's again, it's not so much, it's never, ever, ever about you or me. It's always about the person opposite of us, right? And again, it's, it's about how we continue to give and give and give. And yes, it is the age old Gary Vaynerchuk model, like, you know, jab, 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 right hook, you know, whatever it is, but you do have to give. And you don't have to always be the yes man or women all the time, but you have to at least understand that what you give and what you protrude to an audience is going to you know, be why they come back. And again, it's not so much about the one and done. It's about the retainment. How do you retain an audience? How do you retain attention? And how do you retain people coming back to what you want to do? So to me, it's always been about giving that value. And am I great at it? Again, no, I'm no expert. I hate that term, but I'm always trying. And I think, again, if you try and even don't overthink it, start in the small building blocks of it. Like what is a small thing that you can at least align with on somebody? What's maybe a quirk or an idea that you could just drop in to be a quick LinkedIn message. You'd be surprised. It doesn't need to be the big, you know, like, Hey, here's my background, this and that. It's the smallest things that can get you to connect with the people outside of your network that really move the meter.
0: Andrew, I so hope the listeners are taking notes because I can resonate exactly what you're saying. And really quickly with the Gary Vaynerchuk, I've sort of changed it to add value, add value, then ask in regards to communication side and also even before our call I wanted to get Erica on our call just to thank her because you know we start Erica contacted me and that's how we're chatting today like that is how guys we got connected it's the first time I've connected with Andrew and I love his energy but just for the listeners who are just starting out working with athletes I assume just to state the obvious the communication points you mentioned earlier is exactly the same methods when connecting with a brand but also with athletes at all levels?
1: Yeah. So I I guess uh, I'll take a little bit of a step back to kind of explain how I got into this journey. So when I was at, after I left Octagon, I was working with Anheuser-Busch for many years and I I went to Mosaic, uh, which is an experiential marketing agency that also was working with Anheuser-Busch, but in the United States rather than globally. Um, At that time at Mosaic, I started getting this entrepreneurial bug. And I was like, man, you know, I've met all these incredible athletes. Like I had worked on, you know, different major athlete accounts at Octagon. Like I was able to learn from some incredible agents there, you know, not just day to day, but, you know, proactively pick their brain and the, you know, additional hours and, and hopefully provide some value. Um, at least I know it was valuable for me, but you know, I had built so many great relationships with athletes from the leagues and properties and everything else over the years that I was like, man, you know, there's kind of this void, like, no one, like everyone's talking American football. Everyone's talking American, you know, soccer. Everyone's talking baseball, basketball, hockey. But no one's talking about like action sports. No one's talking motorsports. No one's talking, you know, more of these rising sports properties that I had done my homework to realize, okay, you know, there is a hyper engaged audience here. You know, again, we're not talking millions and millions Super Bowl numbers, but we are talking about an audience that call it two or three million fans with high engagement rates, TV ratings were, you know, on par, like everything was good. I was like, man, why is no one playing here? And I came to realize unless you were Tony Hawk or Ronda Rousey or anything like that, no one really wanted to do anything with athlete number two through 50 in their respective sport. So a lot of these managers and agencies were not taking the time to kind of dive in because the best story was already there. But very rarely was like the, there was, was there a compelling enough story that they could go after, you know, kind of below those ranks. And I was just taking the time and I was like, man, you know, there's, there's so many great athletes. There's so many great stories. Like, why don't they have managers? Why don't they have like someone in their corner, like publicists, like business managers, like who's, who's managing these people. And I came to find out that either they were on an agency's roster, but they were like number 148 out of 150. And they would have to schedule a meeting with the assistant of the assistant of the assistant to the agent in order to actually get a meeting with their own agent, which I thought was just stupid. And then I I looked at things and I was like, man, like, or they have their parents and their parents didn't know. They were just trying to protect their kids. Like, you know, uncle Bobby would be, you know, looking over one of the top surfers careers and uncle Bobby was a freaking grocery store manager. Like how the heck was he supposed to know what a rip curl contract negotiation was supposed to be like? So th- this idea started where I took two words, athletes and opportunities, smashed them together. And I said, how do I take a creative marketing spin on the world of athlete management? Where can I go that there isn't gonna be a lot of static first and foremost, but selfishly, where can I go that's gonna have the least amount of legal red tape? Meaning what can I get away with the most? And that's where I kind of put my first focus was like, where can I go and not necessarily be an agent or a lawyer, right? But, you know, again, for my past jobs, I've negotiated two, three, $4 million contracts. Like, I've worked with procurement. I've worked with legal teams. I know for the most part what to look out for. Again, expert, no way. That's why I surrounded myself with good legal team and a good procurement team when I started this to say, look, if it's a big contract that I can't navigate confidently, I have somebody to fall back on. But, you know, this all kind of started just by saying, okay, I'm going to work with two or three athletes. I'll work with a couple brands locally here in the tri-state area. And, you know, we'll start off, see how it goes. And, you know, all of it went down. Like, I I guess the number one question I get all the time is like, how do you, how did you get these athletes? Like, how did you start this? And what I tell people all the time was it just came from communication and, and connections. Like I authentically had these relationships from working with people in the past that people were like, Stallings, why don't you be an agent? Like, why don't you be a manager? Come on, come on. And I, and just, I've been told my entire life I shouldn't be in sales. I've never wanted to be in sales because I was always scared shitless of just being on a commission-based model of success. I was like, I can't have somebody else be in complete control of my own destiny. Like, I I always felt that was a little, you know, crass. But all that to be said, the communication and the connections led me to kind of building this, you know, small model of athletes that I knew. And then it became word of mouth. Then another surfer told another surfer. And then we signed that person. And then, you know, this soccer player went to tell that one. It was like, okay, well, we signed that one. And then now, we get DMs, you know, a couple times a week from NFL, NBA players, and, you know, we have to turn them down. We're just like, look, that's not our model. That's not where our focus is. And they're waving retainer money in front of us. They want to do this. And I'm just like, no, no, like it's, it's, you know, like my assistant brings it to us and I'm like, look, I'll always have a meeting, but it's just not something that we're diving into right now. So long answer to your question, all of it just started from, you know, authentically building a small community right? I mean, it's kind of like the social media model. Everyone's like, I need a million followers. No, you need 50 followers that all are responding to you right now. And and that's kind of how Othello group started. It was like, I, I needed five to 10 athletes that genuinely cared and were willing to be like, I'm so proud of my agent and my management team. Like, I love these guys. They do everything for me. Like, yeah, like go Othello group. And All of a sudden, it just slowly started progressing, you know, both on social media and and everything else. And, you know, the brands, you know, we work with, we manage 25 athletes to date right now. And then we have about 110 different uh, retainer-based project relationships with different brands and properties and media outlets. So no two deals with any of our athletes or properties are the same. Um, And again, that probably helps with the ADD just a little bit too. (laughs)
0: Again, I hope people are enjoying this conversation. And I really want to tap into this week's podcast topic, which is how can brands and athletes create a competitive edge when working together, particularly in sports that aren't mainstream. As you said, you've rejected NFL players and other big sports, but people like you said, surfers, ice cross athletes, like today. I just learned a new sport and skinboarders. Like, could you just for brands who are, should we say, on the fence? There are benefits, of course, with their products, of course, you know, really utilizing these athletes because there is engagement if that makes sense.
1: yeah, so I think there's two very extreme models of how we look at um athlete partnerships um and and they're both they both have pros and cons. One is you you go all in right, and I'm talking about the companies that'll spend five hundred thousand dollars on one tweet with Tom Brady or something like that. And they're not really doing much strategy. They're they're just like, yeah, we want the we want the impressions, we want the likes, like that's all that matters to us. Like it the bottom line doesn't necessarily matter. It's more the vanity metrics that we care about. And for there, I'm like, okay, you know, if you have the budget to blow on it, and you don't really care, whatever. Like, you know, to each it's their own. Then you have the other side of the coin where you have people that are just like, yeah. I want to give just product or I want to give them discounts on my product. And then I want to give them affiliate code. So they're selling my product. And basically you're doing it from a complete bootstrap. And what I say is a little bit of a disrespectful standpoint, you know, athletes are not salespeople at heart. Like they're not, they're, they're, they're competitors and sure. There's competition in sales, but I always remind my athletes. I remind brands. I remind people of this all the time the biggest and most frustrating thing that I think you'll ever hear from anybody in the world of marketing and partnerships is the affiliate base and commission model. Um, Even if your audience is hyper engaged and they're buying product, they're never, I I, I will say they're never going to buy enough to support you out of the gate. And the, the uphill battle that you're going to be facing with any company that says, Hey, I'm going to give you a 20% kickback. And this is going to be your only salary for working with us. Look, if you're working, if you're using that product every single day, okay. Like you're going to get free products. So the commission doesn't even matter to you. Like we have some premium partners that, you know, their stuff costs thousands of dollars. They come to me and they're like, Hey, we we want to give people just these products. Is that okay? Okay. I'm like, sure, go ahead. Like, you know, for that, if you're going to give them something that they're probably going to use every day or every other day, and it's going to save them thousands of dollars, I got no harm, no foul. But if you look at stuff from a little bit of a bigger scale, you know, it's, it's just a dying, dying model. And we hear it all too often. So for me, the sweet spot to answer your question is looking at athletes as consultants and bringing them to the table as, not just you know professional athletes or not just as influencers with huge followings, bring it to the table and educate them. Let them educate you learn from one another, you know, come to the conversation and have multiple conversations to find the right creative strategy, the right approach and the best way to engage both of your audiences. I always hate the term sponsorship. Now I, I always look at stuff as partnership because sponsorship is used as like a one dimensional transactional relationship And, you know, look, sure, time and a place for something like that, maybe, you know, property, brand, a property side. But I always tell people, I'm like, look, you know, we have to be able to look at these relationships, you know, with athletes and brands and say, okay, you know, how are we doing this for mutual benefit? Oftentimes, it lacks three things. It lacks patience. It lacks, you know, the strategy and then it also lacks like the budget in order to do that um and and by all of that i mean you know very rarely do we get a perfect storm of all those like a brand that says sure sure i want to talk and do this and that it, you know someone with no money has all the all the time in the world to talk you know if they're like yeah sure you know we'll we'll talk we'll do free product but you have to i mean that's our job where we have to kind of filter through early on to say okay you know is this something that checks all of the boxes that make sense to our clients and us? so what I say is again, finding somebody that genuinely wants to build with you and somebody that wants to work with you, not you working for them or they work for you, you have to reinvent and understand that there is a partnership strategy to every single thing that we do so again, what is the give and take and again, you should always be asking yourself that question till the very end of an activation. Like, what are we doing here? What, like, again, what am I giving? What are they giving? What is our goal? So again, just finding the commonality to, you know, work towards something that is bigger than than either
0: party. And just following up on that point you've just said, Andrew, because when I checked out your website, what was really refreshing was your first step with working a brand and an athlete is creating that first vision how important is that before you think about like the metrics you know what's in it for me what's in it for them how important is setting the vision from the starting point
1: it's it's everything it, you you have to come you have to come with something flashy for both parties out of the gate. And I think it doesn't come early though. Uh, you know, you have to kind of sit through and filter through like, what what are the goals? Like, what are you currently doing right now? Like we put, we have a 23 a question survey that all of our brands and properties have to answer, you know, prior to our first phone call it is very difficult to get them to fill that out prior to a first phone call. But, you know, usually after that first or second call, they'll be able to answer that for us or we're able to fill it out for them. So we can at least, you know, answer the I'm sorry, ask the questions on the call and be able to to get that. But you have to be able to help both parties bring a, a vision together and you know that that's kind of what separates ourselves is like you know i always call ourselves like kind of a creative marketing management team um you know we're we're the hybrid between an athlete like we're the hybrid project management tool between athletes and brands and properties because you know so often like even if we're dealing with with agencies we're like yep here's the creative brief we already have it all figured out here you go almost every single time and to the frustration of many agencies <laughs> i'm always like Hey, like my client can probably do this, this, and that, which is going to equal more success for you on this, this, and that. So why don't we do this, this, and that? And they're, you know, I would say most times they're like, just stick to the brief. Here's your money. Here's the brief. It's already defined. Just do it. And I tell them, I'm like, well, that, that's just not how we work. You know, we're always trying to work towards something bigger and better. And we want to make you look bigger and better. Not necessarily even just us. If we were just to take a brief and check the box, like that, who are we? Right? Like we're, we're just agents at that point. We're just influencers. Like, you know, we're just collecting a check. We always have to be working towards something like that's a little bit bigger. And if that is philanthropic, if that is, you know, something with more of a mission statement, if that goes back to kids, like that stuff that we are always thinking about. And I think, you know, you have to make sure that your athletes and clients are thinking that way. You have to make sure that the brands and properties are thinking that way because it cannot be something that is a 15 second of 15 seconds of fame and like a flash in the pan idea. It can never be that way. You have to be able to think long-term in your strategy and approach. Granted, these, the projects and ideas that we have, do they normally make it this distance? Eh, maybe not. But I can tell you, rather than going from here to here, they're at least going from here to here. And we're getting that extra step for better or for worse. We're going through that exercise, if for nothing else, for key learnings for our, um, for our partners on both sides of the table.
0: Andrew, I'm gonna put you on the stop. Any chance you can give a case study? I, I mean, you may not be able to say brands or athletes, but just for the listener listening in where this works, um, and if possible, not a mainstream sport, if that was cool with you.
1: Yeah, so we work a lot in motorsports. And it, typically, in American Motorsports, the model for sponsorship is you wrap a car, you get a fire suit, and you just hope that your driver wins, and you get that t v exposure um, you know there's some hospitality elements worked into that, but the the asset portfolio is i, I don't know rather black and white right there, there's nothing really crazy about it so one of our drivers he's he's one of kind of the the next I would say the next chapter of talented drivers in NASCAR. Um, and we know that for the right brand that has, you know, you know, the kind of caters to his personality, he could be a huge marketing like, tool. Like again, not so much about what he's doing on the track, but how he's doing co- like commercials and content and everything off the track was always going to be a big selling point. So we had a company approach us uh, just, I think a little over two years ago and They were, at the time, a little bit newer. Um, You know, I I can't give specifics of, of, you know, category and stuff, but they were were a bit newer. Their packaging was a little outdated. um, And I just, I remember looking and, and having these original conversations and being like, this makes no sense. Like, what? I was like, what are they even trying to do? Little did I know that they were on the cusp of, you know, just completely beginning to dive in and explore to, a whole new world of digital content and paid Facebook advertising and social strategy and their CMO and their team that they were building out was they were going very, very into, you know, kind of white listing and data and content. So I remember we had original conversations about NASCAR because it was something that was flashy enough and still not, you know, sponsoring a major league baseball team that was, you know, it was a a sizable cost, but it was able to move the meter for them just because it was something new and different. And when I asked them, I said, "Look, you know, we can wrap a car, we can do all this, but you know, talk to me more about what you guys are working against." And once I got kind of the coochie coo about what they were doing with, you know, the the social and content strategy and paid content. I remember we just dove in and we were like, look, like what if we made, you know, these 15 second ads that would pop up on Facebook. And, you know, we talked about how they would be more slapstick and funny and kind of make fun of NASCAR and also make fun of their consumer audience just by being a little bit different. And it it was almost a a satire approach to, to kind of the way that we were marketing to these consumers in a very scripted and commercialized way. And that strategy has helped us completely blow the roof off their investment. And, you know, we renewed with them year over year, you know, it's a partner that I don't see going away anytime soon. And they, you know, they continuously tell us, they're like, look, beyond just the great assets that we get within the sport and within the league, we're able to get so much more from the content and the way that we're able to drive back to, to fan engagement and consumers by getting them involved in the sport. You know, like typically uh, our driver would put his face on the hood of his car, you know, and it it raises a lot of laughs and eyebrows. Like we usually get a lot of media about it. We do it like once or twice a year. So what we're going to go back to do with this company is we're like, Hey, let's run a sweepstakes and let's have a fan get their face on our car. Like, you know, with your product in their mouth, like, how do we do this? Like stuff like that. It's, it's not, again, it's not groundbreaking, but it's like, how do we realize that? Okay, they've done a lot with trying, you know, different metrics of of communication and influencers and stuff like that. How do we really dive into who their audience is, who our audience is and what's kind of the synergistic way that we talk to them through social media and then where do we geo target that strategy? And then how do we do it around specific race weekends to not only get people at the track and to get them watching, but also think of just unique and awesome ways to continue to grow that audience like never before. So Uh, again, I I would say our, our strategy and thoughts went well beyond the NASCAR assets. Um, It went more so into social digital content strategy. And then, you know, coming up, we're going to be looking at a big philanthropic endeavor as well with them. So uh, again, finding that partner that gives you the opportunity to think long-term, it's great. And and you don't have to rush it. I, I think very clearly we laid out that year over year, we almost want to check a box against a new, you know, type of marketing. And that's what we're trying to do now is, is to just go and look at how we do something different and pivot every single year. So it's like, what are they going to do next? What's going to be the next big thing? We kind of want people waiting, you know, and waiting to judge, you know, if we sink and fail, look, they're still, they're still watching. So it, that's totally fine by us.
0: So much for sharing that example. And you actually shared another sort of moral to the story as well, of it's all about partnerships and with longevity. And I hope the listeners take that point. That's why I learned the most, how just one thing at the beginning where it didn't seem right, you adjusted it and then it created longevity within that partnership in the long run. Look, Andrew, out of interest now, what have you enjoyed the most from your sports career journey? Looking back when you and your dad were, you know, watching the ice hockey league back then.
1: It's such a, it's such a difficult answer because I, I'm not really satisfied. Like, as odd as that sounds, I'm not. I'm not in a position where I'm like, oh yeah, I'm so proud of this. Or like, um, like to me, I always compare to what I'm doing. This this is gonna kind of be a little bit dark, but it's true. It, it's everything I do as I compare myself to a degenerate gambler. And I just have a ruthless disrespect for money. I have a ruthless disrespect for competition. And I have a ruthless disrespect for myself in a lot of ways where I just sit there and I'm like, okay, you know, awesome. We just signed this big six or seven figure deal. That's great. But I'm never satisfied. I can't be. I just, I can never, ever, ever be satisfied because success to me is five seconds, like max, like you have five seconds of success and, and that's what you're basking in. For me, I don't even like giving myself that much. I look forward to the day that I'm 65, 70, 80 years old, and I can look back and I'll write that book, and then I'll be able to answer that question for you. For me, we're just getting going, we're just getting started, and there's so much still that needs to be done. All I want to do and all I aim to do is for people to look at what I'm doing and say, That's awesome. Like, if for nothing else, he's trying something different, he's succeeding on his own terms, his company and group are doing well enough that they can be sustainable they have brands, they have athletes that trust them. That's awesome. That's really, uh, to me, that's the biggest compliment in the world. If, and if people want to say like, oh yeah, fellow group, you, (laughs) whatever, like you and your little fancy, like, you know, boutique agency, please mock us, please mock me. Like, I am by no means like, I love criticism. I love it. I even love uneducated criticism because to me, I'm able to filter through it and it helps me almost build thicker skin when how I go into sales pitches and meetings and it helps me further build my confidence because to me, that's the free, like, uh, you know, audience research survey that you oftentimes don't get a chance to get. I always like putting myself out there, you know, to, to feedback. I, I, you know, again, sometimes people won't give you exactly what you want. You know, they're very hesitant, very reserved, but mark my words. If people want to comment on my LinkedIn post and be like, Stallings, this is stupid. If, or, you know, come on, like we saw another agency do this. Tell me, I love it. Like, please educate me. So, for me, my accomplishments. I mean, look, I, I'm just proud that it's here. I, I think my 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 biggest thing is like my dad tells me every time I talk to him during the week. He's just like, you know, I spent forty some years in in banking. And if I had the cojones to do what you're doing, I would go back and do it all. Like I would go back and redo my career all over again. And to me, that's probably the most rewarding thing right now that helps me sleep at night is just knowing that your dad is, is so proud and, you know, he would go back and completely change the way that he's doing, you know, he did his life to be like you. Because again, back in his world, that didn't necessarily exist. Like being an entrepreneur back in his days were a lot harder than it is right now. So, uh, you know, I, I guess that'd be the short answer of it. But long term, I mean, look, let, let's talk in about 50 or 60 years and then I'll give you that answer.
0: Andrew, I'm not looking for a lo- lovely, fluffy answer here. But for any entrepreneurs who are listening in, sort of following the route of you and what you've done, what guidance would you give?
1: Find a mentor, be prepared to fail fail more than you win and just don't stop like until the wheels come completely off and you've skidded on the brake pads for as long as the car will go. You owe it to yourself to try to the point of absolute failure. And even then, right when you're about to give up, that's probably when you're going to find your success. And it's going to be the most frustrating thing in the world because you're going to be so morally defeated and you're going to want to give up. And you're going to have a cool six-figure job opportunity, and say, okay, at least I tried. Right before you put pen to paper, you're probably going to hit your big contract and break in what you're doing with your entrepreneurial journey. You have to just continue to see it through, and you have to understand that you're going to be met with more crossroads than you are a straight path, and that's the beauty of being an entrepreneur is that it's full of decisions, and no, no two decisions are ever right or wrong, but You can always make the most out of any decision that you take. If someone gives you an ultimatum and says, choose this or choose that, just remember that both have pros. Again, even if they don't seem that way, you can take the road less traveled and there's going to be more pros and cons. So for me, I always try to mix up my my answers whenever I have that crossroads decision to say, okay, what's the easy way of doing this that makes sense? And what's the hard way of doing this? that may challenge myself to learn a little bit more about new things and connecting with other people. You have to look at the road less traveled. And for me, I I love taking that road more times than not. Just be prepared and fully embrace the fact that no is not permanent, it is only temporary, and you just have to harness your pitch. And you have to be able to kind of sharpen everything that you do. And you really just have to make sure people believe you. And that's what life is. We're all salespeople. We're all just trying to get through this every single day. And you have to make sure that you're harnessing your pitch, no matter who you are or what you do.
0: Wow. I hope the listeners again are taking notes. How can people interact with you, Andrew, on social media and online?
1: yeah so i uh, i'm a stalling's eighty eight across all my personal social channels um, but personally i would appreciate if you just gave a follow to othello group a t h uh, e l o group um that is us across all social verticals linkedin facebook twitter uh instagram all the fun stuff so we're uh you know, we're, we're getting there, you know, we're, we're far from perfect, but look, I uh, always, always happy to talk to people. Um, if they have questions, concerns, feedback, uh, I'm always a resource. So please feel free to just drop me a line or drop
0: me a DM. That is great to all the listeners listening in. All those links will be on my website relating to this blog post. Andrew, it's been such a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Ed. You're doing a great job. Thanks brother. What a fantastic podcast chat with Andrew. Honestly, there are so many, as I call, golden nuggets of knowledge and also experiences from Andrew which I'll have to re-listen and relearn. For me, again, I say this phrase a lot, but I really mean it. You know, this is why I love podcasting. You can learn so much from each other. For me, with regards to Andrew, my biggest learning lesson is relating to his character is being resilient in what he believes in and what he wants to do. Like for me, my favorite story, and it goes right from the beginning where he said he had 12 rejections to university, but then he took the initiative with his, you know, confidence and courage to just reach out to the dean and he made it happen. I think it's stories like that that we can all learn from. Now, with regards to this week's podcast topic, I hope you've got a better understanding about the power of a brand and athlete working together in a meaningful way. Like Andrew emphasised it so much in this conversation. And that's why if you want to work in sports sponsorship or sport partnership, which he prefers, I do agree, I prefer that term that it should be a partnership approach than just exchange of money or exchange of value as a one quick deal um i love andrew's approach that's all about longevity vision adding more value with regards to the partnership experience like the one case that he shared with that nascar of the you know andrew's team being different with the content creation online with regards to those facebook ads and engaging with the fans you know, this is what it's all about. It's being different. It's being creative. And that's where you create those win-wins, which, you know, relating to Gary Vaynerchuk, which we mentioned, it's that sort of jab, jab, jab hook. And that's what it's all about. And it's just adding that value. So if you want to work in this sector of the sports industry, I really do hope you learnt from Andrew with regards to how to do things the right way, particularly from a communication standpoint, which is vital, which is absolutely vital. I love the way he communicates which he mentioned with the athletes with regards to the brands and really he does like a double check exactly if this is the right fit and if it isn't he's honest and just says this won't work you know when he said he rejects NFL players or athletes from bigger leagues I just love his approach that he's willing to you know look at all the different possibilities before making a true partnership in whatever they're trying to achieve with the brand or the athlete. So look, I really do hope you've enjoyed this podcast chat. And with regards to those career tips, particularly if you aspire to be an entrepreneur, you know, put those into practice, use fail as fuel and just keep going in what you're trying to achieve, make it happen today and have that courage to do what you want to do now and just do it. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Andrew said, fail more than you win and just don't stop.